1: Well hello kids! The Beaver Lodge asks its guests if they're willing to provide an extended interview so that we may better get to know what makes them tick. When they agree, we package it together and present it to you as part of this series. Welcome to season two and episode number 25 of the True North Eager Beaver Interview Project, a series of extended chats with interesting Canadians who have things to say about which you should be aware. Today, recording day is Monday, October 31st, 2022, and sun has given way to some light rain here at the Beaver Lodge, for which I'm grateful, because at least most of the day has had some sun. I'm your host, the eager beaver, pronouns he, him, hey, Mr. Beaver, eh? And I'm especially happy that you, dearest kits, have joined Mr. Grizzly and I for this episode of the Interview Project, because we are tackling the issue of sexual violence, and so, of course, we issue all the requisite trigger warnings that come with such a subject. In June 2022, Jacob Hogarth, who used to be the frontman of the rock band Headley, was found guilty of the sexual assault of a woman from Ottawa in which Justice Gillian Roberts called at the time of sentencing a particularly degrading rape. The woman who was the target of his sexual violence testified that he had choked her so hard she thought she was going to die. Hogarth had also been charged with sexual assault causing bodily harm in the case of a teenage fan as well as sexual interference involving that complainant, but was found not guilty. On October 20th of this year, he was sentenced in Ontario Superior Court to five years in prison and has been granted bail pending the outcome of an appeal. In March of this year, he was charged once again with sexual assault causing bodily harm in another incident, and seven days following his sentencing, a Crown lawyer told a haley Ontario court that the case would proceed. He is awaiting a November 24th court date. In light of these events, we are welcoming to the Beaver Lodge someone who not only values volunteerism, fearlessness, and creativity, but has a firm understanding of how the power of words can influence social change. She describes herself as a passionate activist for literacy, equality, community involvement, and she has very much walked her talk, having worked for over 15 years to empower young women to be the best they can be. She is the founder of an organization that worked with marginalized communities to develop important literacy, leadership, and vocational skills to criminalized women. She has also previously worked as a digital, media strat- digital sta- strategist Sorry, at MediaStyle, has been the coordinator for the Sexual Assault Network of Ottawa, and a women's rights campaigner for Oxfam Canada, and has as well sat for nearly 10 years as the chair of the Public Engagement Committee of the Ottawa Coalition to End Violence Against Women, an organization working to bring an end to gender-based violence in Ottawa. All of this experience, she has brought to the Spark strategy, her latest passion project. Along with co-founder J.R. LaRose, she has developed an innovative approach to sexual violence prevention. Kits, please welcome Bailey Reed. Hello, Bailey.
2: Thank you. Hello. That was like a really nice intro. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, you're most welcome. And and thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, um, maybe we should just start with uh, why it is the Jacob Holgard case um, sparked your particular interest and from what angle you're approaching it.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I am always following the news um, of sexual violence and, uh, you know, My interest is really how we're having conversations about these issues. I I mean, I think we know the statistics, which are that, you know, one in four women and one in six men experience sexual violence in their lifetime, and folks who are trans and non-binary experience them at even higher rates. So, you know, I we know that this is a reality. And so for me, when we think about prevention, and I really do believe that sexual violence is a solvable problem. um, You know, I think a lot of that comes to how are we having these conversations? How are we talking about it? And how are we focusing on prevention in our communities? So definitely the Jacob Hogard case, because of his role in the Canadian rock scene um you know including the band and then his roles on tv shows and stuff I think there was so much conversation about it and uh it's an interesting evolution from the conversations that we had about Gian Gomeshi Mm -hmm. a number of years ago sort of in and around the Me Too movement so uh yeah that's that was really why I became interested in this case
1: okay so Obviously, his notoriety uh, brings the subject to, you know, kitchen tables and into people's homes, uh, because, I mean, I I was a fan of the music.
0: Mm -hmm. As was I. Now I can't listen to it. I can't listen to it now. I just, I don't, I, I don't feel good about it. And I know that maybe someday down the road, I'll be able to separate the art from the I don't even want to call him an artist right now, quite frankly, but someday I might be able to make that separation, but I can't right now. I can't. I
1: feel the same way about R. Kelly and Chris um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Brown.
0: Yeah, I just Chris Brown.
1: I, I couldn't understand why people were still recording with him after.
0: It's money. Wow. Money, dude. Money. Yeah. Um,
1: tell us a, a bit more about, the SPARK strategy and how it is that uh, what, what is innovative about it?
2: Well, I think our approach really is to look at the, the problem of sexual violence in a way that we, we think about it like a, we use design thinking. So if we think about it as a problem and as a so then together we need to come up with solutions and we work together to you know, rather than identifying as survivors or harm doers, and some of us wear both of those hats, um, we think about it just as the object of the problem and then work through it like that. And our approach is really to be trauma-informed and survivor-centered and, you know, really keep those as key values in the work, but also recognize that people are the experts of their own organizational culture. And so we work really well with, um, folks where there is a typically a reluctance or a resistance to mandated sexual violence training, and, um, and instead of saying, you know, you're the problem, now you have to have a training, we come in and say, there is a problem, mm-hmm. you are probably the solution, because you know your culture best, so mm-hmm. what would work for you to create prevention and safety in these spaces? When we lead folks who are a facilitated process to help them co-create a prevention strategy specifically crafted for their workplace.
1: Now, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. As in, It's a different approach. Yeah, there is a problem because we just had that interview with Murray, right? Where he talked about being tough on the problem, but easy on the people. Mm-hmm. But rather starting with, uh, as a starting point, that somebody here is the problem. So it's rather somebody here is the solution.
0: Yeah, it's it's a different spin on it, uh, and, and I think it. Uh, well, it's a positive spin to begin with, but I think approaching the problem from that aspect is is much better than yelling, screaming, and pointing because that's sort of my automatic reaction, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a goaltender. I, I'm I'm my natural state is defensive. So uh, when when you when you talk about it in, in changing the approach not only is it a novel way to do it, but I think it's a lot more effective manner to do it too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you talk about your approach as a, as a goaltender, and I've also been watching what's happening with Hockey Canada, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these huge organizations have kind of a a, a standard response when these things become public, right? Mm-hmm. And And so, first of all, they're coming from a place of, fear and not accountability which i think is really an important shift that as communities we need to make we have to come from a place of accountability and talk about these things recognizing that harm happens and just because it happened doesn't mean you have to you know totally shut down right we can we can come at it from accountability and you know there's kind of like this trifecta like a holy trinity of Uh, public relations crisis response in these cases, right? They talk about mandated training, uh, systemic policy review, and an internal investigation. Those are the three things that every organization will always commit to when they're on the cover of whatever newspaper, at the top of all the media, you know, conversations. So that's fine, but it puts people on the defensive. And so specifically that mandated training always feels like punishment. Mm-hmm. So our, our thing is saying, let us come in first and lead folks through this process. In that way, let them ask for the training that they need. And then you're not mandating it. They're, they're going to ask for training. People want training, (laughs) but let them ask for it and then you can respond to it. So is it training on toxic masculinity? Is it bystander intervention training? These are the kinds of things that um, then we help organizations link and we, there's lots of amazing community organizations out there that do that work. And so, you know, it's not even necessarily us that come in and do that. We link them with the local rape crisis center or the local advocacy group and and you know the local um organization that maybe talks to men by men that that kind of thing so um that's our approach let people tell you what they need empower them to be those creators of change and then from there um the program is unstoppable Mm
1: -hmm. well i also like because you know when you're talking about the playbook the playbook is reactive. And this is proactive mm-hmm. because any organization, this can happen in org- any organization, right? You can have the best culture ever and, you know, you're dealing with humans and humans are flawed. And, you know, you. whenever you bring someone into an organization, you can do all the security checks and verification that you want, but you never know when it is going to happen, you know, that at some point. Someone decides to go de- well decides. I don't even know if you make that if you can call that a decision, but something happens in someone's life that leads them down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you take the assumption that that this is a risk in any organization and therefore how do we develop the accountability mechanisms beforehand? Right, Because it seems like when you're talking about bystander intervention training, it seems that it would be much more healthy for, you know, if people see something, say something, some kind, rather than just saying, oh, well, you know, uh, yeah, that's just someone being someone or, oh, I didn't think was going to be that bad or, you know, oh, I had a feeling that, but because everybody says that after, oh, Mm -hmm. I had a feeling, but nobody says anything. And for
0: generations, that's how it was. We looked. The opposite way, a- and didn't we didn't have the tools to deal with it? And we would, you know, there was stories about Gian Gomeshi where uh, other producers that worked in CBC at the times would say, say to a new young woman who would come into the crew, say, you you want to stay away from him. So it's like they knew, and I'm not angry about you know this this person was trying to do the right thing, but I don't think they had the tools. In the toolbox to deal with it in 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 a correct and proactive manner, other than just saying avoid that guy. Um, yeah, it's it's that's a really a unique way of approaching it. You have a completely proactive manner, and like you say, people want to learn. People are eager to learn.
1: What has been your experience when you go into an organization?
2: I mean, I think we've been blown away by the response. And I think that's, I mean, for me, one of the most exciting things about this approach is that um, I could, all, like, I've been doing this work for over 15 years. I can come up with ideas for organizations and help them develop strategies. But every single time we run a session, I am blown away, blown out of the water by what they come up with themselves. Like, I could never you know, because I'm not in that organization. So how would I ever think of that? And I think that that's one of the really amazing things about it. And I think people um, tend to respond really well to this. Is, you know, they don't feel, um, even if they feel um, defensive when we start, the way that we center storytelling and build buy-in will always create a momentum that people get excited about. I think people are very often used to coming to trainings and sitting there for an hour, ticking a box by attending, giving the right answers in the scenario questions, and then walking away and never thinking about it again. Mm -hmm. And so I know JR, um, because he's been doing this work for over a decade as well, he was really excited when we partnered to do the first session, which we did at Carleton University with um, with athletes in a pilot project there. Mm -hmm. And... um, You know, he said to me, I've never done anything like this before. And I thought, well, that's pretty exciting. You know, he's been doing this work for over a decade. Like, I have, and neither of us have ever done anything like this before. And that's when we thought, you know, we need to take this and really run with it. Um, Because, yeah, it's just such a different experience for people, especially when they think what they're coming to is a two-hour training where they just show up and you know, daydream (laughs) until they get
0: to leave. That Mm -hmm. does happen sometimes. Yes, Yes. (laughs) it does. Now
1: you you said your first training was at Carlton university with athletes and JR does come from the sports world. Yes. And we, like we said in the inter in the, in the introduction, you've had 10 years as the chair of the public engagement committee at the Ottawa coalition to end violence against women. How did, what skill sets did you both bring together and how did you, you two, like connect and meet to be able to start this initiative.
2: We connected um, through a great program through the Canadian Football League and a partnership with End Violence BC. So they had an they had a project where they were um, working with the CFL to train their players and coaches and staff on gender based violence, mm-hmm. and they recognized the need to have voices from within the organization as part of the work so they um brought a bunch of cfl players who are interested in doing this work and then they also recognized the really important feminist history piece of it that you need to have the local feminist perspective um, as part of this as well so they would pair one of their players with a local women's organization so Because of my work at the Ottawa Coalition on Violence Against Women, um, I was able to work with JR when we trained the Ottawa Red Blacks, and uh, and then we did that a couple of times together, and he and I just really liked working together. We really kind of had a very similar presentation style, a similar facilitation style, so um, when the opportunity came up to work with him in other contexts, I would always call him up and, and, uh, bring him to whatever I was doing. And then with the spark strategy, what we did was I called him and said, got kind of a crazy idea. I don't, I don't know. We're going to do something on the fly. Are you interested? And he was like, sure, let's give it a try. And, um, yeah, it was a three day, three half day session. And, um, the athletes responded to it and we're just so excited and, and, again, came up with all these amazing ideas. And so that's how it came to be.
0: Wow. Mm. That's a, that's really cool. Um, and, and the fact that you went with for CFL athletes, like, you know, big, brawny, tough football players, right? And yet, you know, the, like you just said, they, they, they came up with unique ideas and aspects. And, and everybody wants to have their voice heard, right? Everybody wants to have their voice heard. So when you when you go into a training session like that where we really do want to hear what you have to say, it's a way to interact with people in, in, a, in a learning environment that is, well, not traditional and probably decades overdue. I mean, really, the, the interactivity of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely a different way of doing things and... There, I think it's important to recognize that there is space for so many things. And I think, when I think about the work that um, grassroots feminist organizations have been doing for a really long time, um, I think what's so important about their work is that they are always survivor-informed. Often they're frontline agencies who are supporting survivors, so they're hearing those experiences on the ground, which is really an important foundational aspect of this work. And then, you know, I think it's also about resourcing, and that's that's part of it too, that um, these local organizations simply do not have enough resources. And that's something we should all be advocating for mm-hmm. from provincial and federal government funding. Um, since the the pandemic, the rates of gender-based violence and sexual violence have skyrocketed. Oh, yeah. um, we saw that after the Me Too movement, rape crisis centers were, like, seeing numbers that were, you know, a third or more beyond their capacity, and their funding never got in step with those, those sort of pop culture trends. And so I think, you know, when I'm doing this work, I'm always conscious of, of making sure that we're still... Prevention is really important. And until we get to this utopia of prevention where this is a problem that has been eradicated, we also have to make sure that we're not being put in this false dichotomy of prevention or response. We can right. do both, and we right. have to make sure that that response piece is, is there until we've actually solved this problem, which I do believe will happen, and then I'll just go run a flower shop or
0: something. <laughs> it's like you, you ultimately want to put yourself out of business, Right. I mean, that is the goal is put yourself out of business because wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where there was no sexual assault, no sexual violence, nothing like that? I, you know, um, it's a lofty ambition and I fully 100% support you. Maybe I'm a little old and jaded to think that it's possible, but you know what? I'm, your enthusiasm uh, inspires me uh, and it makes me think that, you know what, we, with enough people trying to solve this problem, we probably can.
1: Well, it's like they say in the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, right? You'll never know unless you give it a go. Um, where does your optimism come from?
2: I mean, I, I guess it just comes from thinking that when I when I think about this, when I think about social violence as a problem, I really, practically speaking, see it as a thing we can change because it's really, it's about... Um, toxic cultures. It's about um, internalized messaging that the media contributes to. So I think you know, if we were to break it down into all its little pieces, if we look at rape culture and and pull out all those little pieces, and everybody commit to changing their sort of piece of the pie, you know, there's no reason why we can't solve this, right? It's it's about recognizing people's bodily autonomy. It's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, it's about challenging entitlement to other people's bodies. It's, and that's why I think when we talk about it in the context of a workplace or an organization, seeing those little pieces of the culture and recognizing that you have a role to play is is really important. And that's one of the things, you know, about the Jacob Hogarth case, especially. I think there's so many people on tour with bands, and you, there, there's you can't tell me no one knew. right like there is no way he was that secretive and that good so there's like you said paul there's these whisper networks that are that happen and it's the same thing with john gomeshi um and so when those things are happening we have to look at power and there are people with more power in organizations than other people have so you know maybe a roadie doesn't feel like empowered to go to the management and say this is what's going on so maybe they're the you know the kind of person that warns young women to stay away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right but management it somewhere along the way those there's, there's whispers right mm-hmm. because the people organizations also see this as a liability issue right so when there's tactical meetings about like how do we manage this as a liability issue that's where people with big power need to be thinking about how do we stop this, right? And so I think those are some of the important pieces too. So I'm not saying that everybody in every organization has enough power to stand up and say, hey, that's not okay, Mm -hmm. but there are definitely people in that organization that do have that kind of power. So I think that's part of it too. And it's just recognizing, you know, what jokes are being made at the coffee stand. What are people laughing at? How can you challenge that? And I think one of the things that I love about working with JR is that he really has a very honest perspective of that from being in a locker room mm-hmm. for many, many years mm-hmm. and about how, as a team, they shifted that culture. And, you know, if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere, I think. You mm-hmm. know, these. It, it goes to show it's completely possible. And it's just taking a commitment of people at all levels of an organization who are not going to laugh at the jokes, who are going to say, that's not funny, or I I can't believe you just said that. Right. Mm -hmm. You can say, I can't believe you just said that so many different ways that even if you are a very um, conflict adverse person, Mm -hmm. you can deliver that in a way that isn't that scary. Mm -hmm. Right. You can just be like, oh, I can't believe you just said that out loud. You know, and mm-hmm. you can also say, I can't believe you just said that out loud. Mm-hmm. Right? There, there's two different ways to say that.
0: And, and, and and it, same words, but have a completely different meaning in the way you say them. Exactly. Right? Exactly.
2: Mine would but probably come across heavy-handed.
0: Mm-hmm. Mine, mine would be heavy-handed. <laughs> I need to learn the kid glove things. Uh, I had it once a long time ago, and then things happen in my life. And, and you know, I need to work on myself, of course, to, to, to approach problems with a... a a gentler touch as, as, as Murray says you know be, be hard on the problem and, and gentle on the people so it's something I am working on um, and but and and you know folks like yourself help instill that um, sense of, of we can do better when you know better you do better right and and once you know better it's easy to do better and and one of the things uh, I guess is, is this why a lot of this sexual assault has gone on in the workplace and in you know, the, wherever, life. Uh, it's people not necessarily knowing that that is wrong. And I know that sounds maybe foolish and naive, but there's, you know, you have people who grew up in a maybe a very toxic, male-dominated environment, and that's all they ever knew. So if nobody taught them that you don't do that, they don't know. I'm not saying they're innocent, but, you know, educating somebody. Giving them the skills that and the tools to, like you said, when you know better, you do better. So anyway, that's just my yeah. thought on it.
2: No, I think that's really important, and I think you know, particularly as men, talking to other men about healthy relationships and healthy sexuality, and um, you know, making sure that consent is the very baseline in any activity that you're doing. I think those are really important things, and of course. There is room for a more heavy-handed approach, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also room for conversations that are without judgment but do express concern, you know? And I think I used to work for an organization called the Neighbors, Friends, and Families campaign. They're based out of London, Ontario, and they're an amazing campaign. And they focused on how to have conversations with people like neighbors, friends, and families about intimate partner violence because so few people actually ever go beyond that little network when it comes to, to those issues. Like, they're not going to counselors, they're not going to the police, they're just, they're, a neighbor is seeing it or whatever. And, you know, one of the, the training components was really men talking to men, and one of the uh, techniques that they talked about was saying, I'm worried, right, I'm concerned. I'm seeing how you're treating your partner, and I'm worried you're gonna lose your family. Mm-hmm. more you're going to hurt somebody, you know, and so not excusing the behavior, not in any way justifying it, just naming it and saying, this is worrying me, right, and, and, you know, I think these problems can't be solved in a day, oh, just one conversation probably isn't enough, but on the other hand, it does give people that thinking twice, right, and I think as men you have a really important role to play in that particularly speaking to young men because you would be able to have conversations with young men in your life that someone like me won't ever be able to have. And so I think that's, you know, you should feel empowered to be able to have these conversations and really do a lot and and have a huge impact because you do. Mm
1: -hmm. I like it when you say that approaching conversation from uh, the, I'm worried I'm concerned because when you're worried and concerned, uh, It becomes the conversation becomes more consequence based. I'm worried that you will lose your family. I'm worried you will lose your job. I'm worried about your reputation. I'm worried you'll be get kicked off the team. You know the 25 years of training that you did, or the 20 or 20 years you put in your marriage, or you know your picture will be in the press. (laughs) Your reputation will, you know, that's yeah, it's it's more. I would assume that a lot of people, when they're in that moment, they're not thinking about what the potential consequences, right? They're thinking of whatever gratification they're going to get in that moment. And if someone gets harmed in the process, so be it, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes the thinking isn't deeper than that. And by having that type of conversation, you're making people think of what the next logical step would mm-hmm. be like a sort of the mess they'd have to clean up afterwards um yeah like I, I can see how that uh, is there has there been anybody like in any of the groups that you've gone to th- in which you've given the training that have contacted you afterwards and said you know this is how our culture has changed since and you know giving you some feedback on some some positive things
2: yeah, I, I mean, I think um, we worked with one organization, they're actually going to bring us back next year, probably. Mm-hmm. So that's really exciting. They, you know, they obviously felt like it's enough of an impact that they want to work with us again. Um, and I know that they've got some things happening. So I think, you know, those things are really exciting. Um you know, hearing how some of the athletes did bystander intervention after I think was a really important thing, too. I, I love hearing stories of organizational change and shifts, but I also think those interpersonal um, conversations are really important, too. So, um, So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a few things that I think have really been impactful, and I know that you know, folks probably contact JR after as well because he's a really accessible person. So, um, so yeah, I think, yeah, we're excited to hear more. We're, we're still new, so we don't have a ton of um, feedback yet. But I'm thinking hopefully after 2023 we'll have more data in that to offer as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic.
1: Now, I see how this works for example you know like at a university or an office but when you're talking about the jacob hogart situation that's if you can call it an organization has a whole lot less structure Mm -hmm. uh, because i mean you have your core band and like and they probably have a managing company uh but when you go on tour you know the tour bus driver can change at any given moment uh you know whoever's building the stage yeah, you know, some of them follow you for the whole tour, but some of them don't.
0: That's right. Most uh, are local. Yeah. Most are locals for whatever venue. So you'll have maybe a small complement of four or five road crew and the rest are, you know.
1: So how would, what would be some differences in strategies when you have a, a looser based organization like that? Because also in the Jacob Hobart situation, there's the thing that like, for example, when you say like, you know, like you I couldn't I wouldn't be able to believe that none of the other band members knew and I don't want to say they did know because mm-hmm. we're not there we don't know uh but in that situation specifically I mean that guy's the frontman and the singer and the songwriter a lot of their life and their livelihoods and their families depend on him right if something happens to him um you know things happen to them too and people sometimes find it harder to find the courage when their own vested interest is at stake. So what happens in a loose organization like that?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, the the hard thing about approaching things from a place of accountability and not fear, and this is not just for sexual violence, this is for most things in our life where we mess up, owning up to it is often quite a bit harder (laughs) than it is to to run away from it or ignore it or just, you know, say, well, that's the end of that friendship, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this is where policy has a role, too. So I often say in trainings that culture eats policy for breakfast. A friend of mine who's a police officer told me that, Mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah. Um, You know, culture change is critical, and policy change alone will never change culture. But when there is relevant policy that can help shift culture, that's really important. So I think, you know, when music labels are signing artists, there should be like explicit sexual violence conversations in those contracts Mm -hmm. um, that let artists know this is not something we as a label will tolerate. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, you know, the more we talk about sexual violence, the less scary it becomes to talk about. So organizations should be seeing this as part of like a health check of, of any kind of thing. When people are doing strategic retreats and strategic planning, healthy workplaces and prevention of sexual violence should be part of those conversations always because, you know, the that's how we make it so that people feel like they can come forward to management. That's how we make it so that people who are causing harm, or have been accused of causing harm, feel like they can come and get support. And, you know, when JR and I started working, that was one of the things that I really liked about the CFL program, was that, yes, there were consequences for players who were found guilty, or, had you know, in an investigation were found responsible for causing harm, but they weren't just dropped from the team there was then resources put in place to help them change behavior, which I think is really, really important. If we are just canceling people without any other supports in place, we'll just keep building shelters to the sky and keep filling them because we can't just push people who are harmful to the fringes of society and that's that. That's not the reality. So we have to find a way to hold people accountable so that they feel like they can change. So I think in a in a back to your original question, you know, if one of the bandmates had said, Look, man, you're putting my family at risk here too, because look at the culture out there. If mm-hmm. someone finds out what you're doing, you know, if 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 you're hurting people, which you are, you are hurting people, this is gonna harm us in the long run. You know, do you need some help? Can I help you find some counseling? Can I, you know, what about your partner, right? Because he had a wife and and a family, his own wife and kids. So, you know, I think that these are accountability conversations are things that we need to think about all the time too. And so, um, you know, same thing. I think in those loosely structured organizations where there's explicit policy that people can fall back on, as well as... Ways to have conversations about accountability that um, that make sure people know that change is possible. I think that that's kind of the formula there. Mm-hmm.
1: I like what you said there too, because um, as soon as you made, as soon as you talked about, you know, not canceling people but giving them some extra tools or directing them towards some help, I immediately thought of the church, for example, where. You take a priest, okay, and now there starts to be talk. so you just move them to another parish. And it just starts up again. Or even in sports, right, There's a, there was a story uh, I, I was reading. Uh, I'm not sure if it has anything to can't remember if it has anything to do with sexual violence or just uh, intimidation and bullying, but there was a coach, a soccer coach in the United States that was just, he, there was talk about him, and then all of a sudden he just moved, like heading the U.S. Curling Federation, like and then, you know, and they got upset and you know like and, and it was similar to Hockey Canada, you know, oh yeah, we think we can handle this, you know, like this. We did our check, we did our investigation, he promised like and and the, the, the curl the, the team USA curling revolted and they said like no we're not going to have this. Um so yeah, it's yeah, you can't just if you just say we're not going to deal with it, go away. Like this, okay, you've solved the problem temporarily in your, or- your own organization, but you haven't solved the problem.
0: The problem is still present. You started another fire in a different location, right?
1: So that's all you've done. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's kind of, you know, it's the same as just paying off survivors to be quiet, right? Like that right. doesn't solve the problem either. So I think when we think about how to create actual change it's that there are consequences for causing harm and supports Mm. for change right it has to be both and i think in hollywood we kind of see men in the me too movement who who were accused of harm just sort of quietly go away for a couple of years and then they kind of (laughs) reemerge on the scene with a new project or whatever and that's not accountability either right and so i think we we want to see people do the work and i think it's too bad there may be men who are doing work but we don't know about it because they don't talk about it and mm-hmm. that's too bad because i think part of part of this is that if you have caused harm and you take accountability for that you should talk about the work that you did to change. And I think there is a good uh, example of that, Aziz Ansari, who, um, mm. it, you know, he, I've seen quotes where he's talked about, uh, you know what, yeah, I, I that was hard. <laughs> yeah. But if it makes me and other men think twice about what they're about to do, be really careful, take the extra step to get consent, make sure everything's good, then that's a good thing. You know, and I think that's a good example of someone who did take accountability and talked about it. And I think, you know, again, so much of this is rooted in toxic masculinity, right? Where men can't have feelings and they're not supposed to talk to other men and they're not supposed to have a hard time or struggle. They're just supposed to like be gruff and get through it. Right. That's, that's not fair. That's not fair to men or women or anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's like, that's part of it. We have to let men have feelings and talk to other men about them.
0: There's mm-hmm. an entire series on TikTok about that where um, a yeah. woman asks, she says, guys, when you're you know, at your lowest of the low, at your lowest point, who do you turn to? Who do you talk to? And hundreds of guys, just nobody. There's nobody. I don't have anybody to talk to. I'm on my own. And that story is, I mean, that series is, it's just, it's it's heart-wrenching because it's true. It's true every single day. And I know guys who've gone through some tough stuff. And I've been able to get somebodies to open up to me to a certain degree. And I'm, I'm pretty much an open book for the most part. But that's taken, you know, I'm 54. It's taken me a long time to get here. A very long time. And I still have a long way to go as far as I'm concerned. I think I can always be a better human. But, you know guys, especially, you know, uh, if you're, if you're sort of, I don't want to use the word macho, but you know, if if you're an athlete of some type, well, you're not expected to have any feelings, but joy and occasionally anger, but only on the field. And, and I mean, it's a blanket statement to make that, but society is all always sort of, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's like, if I was sitting in the pub at a table full of guys and I broke down and started to cry because I was going through something, everybody would scramble. But if a woman breaks down to cry, everybody runs to her aid. And I think the problem is nobody wants to admit that men have those same feelings. And men don't want to admit to it because it looks like a sign of weakness. So, you know, I mean, we're both blubberers on this show from time to time. We've broken down. No word of a lie. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit to it. I have feelings. I have emotions. I'm a human being. But you're absolutely right. There's so many young men that have nobody to talk to. And they're, 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 they don't know that they're allowed to have the feelings that they have. And they don't know how to express. So there's a lot of work to be done. But, uh, you know, you, you just give me so much hope for this world, Bailey. You really do. It's like you want to fix this thing. And I know you're going to do it. Sorry, I'm getting emotional.
1: welling up is the last thing you want to be told is if you're a guy, when you're expressing an emotion, it's like be a man. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Nothing more emasculating.
2: No. And that does a disservice to everybody. Right. Like that is, that's that It doesn't make any sense. And that's not fair. And, you know, I think it's the reason that I feel so strongly about it is because, again, so much of gender-based violence is rooted in those concepts, right? And so I think by making sure that men have space to have a conversation with other men and get support where they need it, we're actually really helping survivors of violence and, and future generations. And I think, you know, I'm now the mother of a son, and uh, so much of this now feels so real to me because every day I think about, you know right now he's only 18 months old so of course he can cry as much as he wants but there are going there's going to be a day where i'm going to look at him and i'm going to want to say stop that mm-hmm. right and i i can admit that because again i want to model that accountability i was raised in a rape culture misogynistic i i internalized all those messages in the media about men being men and not crying and things right so you know it's really important to me that i keep checking myself on that and making sure that I am unlearning those stories of masculinity that I grew up in, in you know, internalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's really how we make sure that there's change and room for emotions from all genders going forward.
0: Well, and, and it's, you know, you say that and, and it makes me think it's, it's uh, we need to remind ourselves. These, like you said, you're trying to break the cycle, right? And the cycle is something that's been there for a very, very, very long time. So when life gets difficult, when life gets hard, when you get worn down and tired out, it's easy to fall into that. And you just said, you know, there's going to be a day when I'm going to tell him stop crying, and you know what's wrong. But but at least you're again, you're accountable for it. So yeah, wow, um, I'm feeling a lot of things right now. <laughs> yeah. I really am. It's it's it's. Uh, I'm kind of speechless, which is a rarity for me, an extreme rarity
1: um when you talk about your son, that just made me think about it because we often say you know it's uh, talk about raising better boys mm-hmm. right it's why should it always be if we're talking about yeah. I know all genders can be the the, the target of a, of sexual violence uh you know but <laughs> Often when it comes to women, um, it's, you know, what did you do? Why didn't you stop it? You know, what did you do to lead mm-hmm. them on? And, and why aren't we teaching the boys? It's like, don't, don't do that. be that guy. Nobody yeah. likes that guy. Don't be that guy.
0: Right.
1: Is there anything, like, for example, from from Spark, uh, that if there are any parents that are listening to the show, that they can take to have conversations with their young children?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, building conversations about consent into everything that you do is really important. And there's, I mean, there's lots of wonderful resources out there. There's really good books about consent for youth now, because I think culturally, we're starting to recognize that more. So, you know i would say look for those kinds of conversations about people's bodies being their own people you respecting other people's bodies and this this space that that they want or don't want or whatever and i think um as your kids get older and you're having you know conversations about sex and pornography and as as we all have to do now that thanks to the internet yeah, I- um you know making sure that All kids, but especially young men, understand that porn is fake, Mm -hmm, fantasy, just almost like a video game. So unreal, right? And then um, that they understand that asking for consent, building consent conversations into that isn't going to kill the mood. If it kills the mood, probably wasn't right anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think, um, again, as they get a little bit older, really, really important to have conversations about drinking and sex, because I think pop culture-wise, and, yeah. I, you know, I talk about this from my experience as a young person when I was in university, getting hammered and hooking up was the goal. <laughs> that yeah. was the point, right? Yeah. So I think making sure that young people, you know, you want to tell them sober sex is the best sex, right? That's what you want to do. Um, right. However... There may be times when you're drinking and going to engage in sexual activity. So, would this happen if the other person was sober? If the answer is no, don't don't do it. That's a that's a big red flag, right? Is this right. person passed out? Are they throwing up? Are they? Would you let them drive you home? Mm-hmm. The answer is no.
1: Mm, that's Maybe a good don't, one. Right. <laughs> Right. right. But I'm, I'm noticing, I, I, it's funny that you're mentioning that because I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day um, where, um, oh, how do I say this without giving too much away, uh, where there was a party and some of the young girls there were drinking a lot mm. uh, and um, he's not of drinking age. Uh, yet and uh, his mother raised him such that you know you don't and he happens to be a good boy (laughs) who's listening to his mom Uh, but uh, there were girls that were all over him and sort of propositioning and I would suggest that the young girls probably weren't of drinking age either Mm. at this moment Uh, and I don't think in 2022 anymore it is as rare for a young boy to maybe find himself in that situation as it would have been before, mm-hmm. right? So there's, I know for myself when I was younger, um, when I was 16, um, there are, there were some times that I would have liked to have said no to advances. Uh, and uh, now I was in places where advances could happen. So I looked older than my age. So I was allowed into bars before I should have been. Uh, I had a beard at 13. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right? uh, uh, and I would have liked to have said no, but felt pressured and didn't have the tools mm-hmm. like this. And therefore, not necessarily yes said yes, but didn't necessarily say no and maybe allowed some things to happen in order to get them over with so that I wouldn't be late for curfew, something when I really would have rather not wanted to.
0: I think that's a lot Um, more common than most people would be willing to admit.
1: Yeah. Um, Is there anything for that as well? Like in terms like not only the the don't do it, but how do you get to assert that you have the right to say no?
2: Yeah, I think you know that is more common than we think and i think that's one of the ways that toxic masculinity harms men uh, as much as it harms women there you know any encounter that is non-consensual is non-consensual and it doesn't matter what the gender is you know those are Mm -hmm. that's any kind of coercion right that's non-consensual so i think um recognizing that because Young men feel like, well, isn't all sex good sex? Or, like, who cares, right? I, I'm supposed to just want this. Like, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be just this hormonal, sex crazed machine who just never wants to say no. That's wow. not true for a lot of young men. Mm-hmm. And, and it's fine that that's not true. And I think that that's a myth that toxic mas- masculinity promotes. So I think it's. Also about empowering young men that you don't have to want to do that twenty four seven, and that's okay. And and if somebody pressures you, regardless of their gender, that's not okay either. You 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 your body is your own, and so I think that's why those conversations about consent and building those kinds of things in with even young boys is helpful for them to relate to other people, but it's also helpful for them to own their own bodies and know that they get to to, to decide who touches them and how and, and that kind of thing. So I think, you know, it, it's the same thing that I would say to a young woman or any other gender. Um, you, you do what you need to do to feel safe. And like you said, get home on time, get to curfew. There are there are often times where young people will trade one activity so that they don't have to do something else to you know, yeah. get out of the situation or whatever. Um so those are those are very common experiences, but um you know it's really about making sure that everybody knows they get control over their body and they get to say what happens with it and what doesn't
1: Well, um, Bailey, uh, we know that you uh, have to go because you have little ones to go pick up. <laughs> it's that hour. Um, thank you. Yes, thank uh, you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, this is wow. I I didn't think it was going to get that personal <laughs> uh, when we started. Uh, I, I'm I'm a little um, out of sorts actually at the moment. That's okay. Um, that's okay, yeah. this is
0: a safe space, remember? This this is a safe space. And I, you know, there there are toxic men who will laugh at me saying that, and I'm like, bring it on. Bring it on. Laugh at me all you want. I need to make the world a better place for everybody else. I can't do it alone, but because I'm a cis hat 6 six-foot, 54-year-old, white, Anglo-male in Canada, I'm at the top of that white privilege pyramid. So I need to use my my uh privilege and my in- what little influence i have but my privilege to do good and look, i'm going to make a lot of mistakes along the way because this is i mean we're we're in in many respects uncharted territory it's uh, nobody had there was no guide for me other than my father but my mom and dad have been married since 1966 so <laughs> my dad was just always my dad and there and he was that solid rock and he still is at 82 he's still going strong but but there was no sort of uh, uh, um, outside influence, if, if that makes any sense, that, that there was no guiding light to point to and say, well, that fellow right there is leading the way. My father led the way by, by being a good, honest man, but we needed somebody to uh, uh, kick down the doors of, of toxic masculinity and, and make the change that we all want in this world. Yeah.
1: So... Um Yeah, it's, sorry, please.
2: Oh, I was, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your stories and your experiences. And, and, you know, obviously I'm honored that you shared them with me, but I'm also, I think, you know, by talking about these things, that is really how we create the change. And Mm -hmm. I think there's probably, you know, other men who are listening to this and are going to be inspired by you both. So thank you so much
1: thank you for saying that. thank you thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us this is a very 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 important topic and um when you do have more experience with the the spark strategy and start having more data would you come back and share more about what you learned with us
2: yes i would love to all right maybe we can have jr
1: too
0: yeah that would be
1: wonderful yeah yes all right kids. uh that was. Oh, that was emotional. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not not going to lie. Yeah, some emotions. I'm feeling the feels, as the kids say today.
1: Yeah, yeah all the feelings. Um, all right. Uh, Mr. Grizzly, I think we have a show.
0: I believe we do. Thank you once again, Bailey. Really do appreciate your time. And, and, uh, and uh, I know we've been trying to put this together for about a week or so. Uh, but thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us. We really do appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me, and thank you for, again. Thanks for being brave, men brave enough to talk about this. It's amazing.
0: That's what we have to do. Thank you. To family. Take care. Bye. 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 <sighs> <sighs> yeah, a lot, a lot of lot of feelings there, and I'm still I'm still processing a lot of stuff right now too, because um, it, it just makes me think about a million different things. So, yeah. Lots to think when about. We start,
1: when we started this, I thought it was going to be way more clinical.
0: Mm, you and know, like
1: looking at I, it on the outside, like you know, like a Rubik's cube, mm-hmm, and talking mm-hmm. about it like it's this thing.
0: Yeah, it's it's well, you know, like I said, we're Ooh. we're trying to create a safe learning space for everybody, um, and in doing so, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna. Take a little bit out of us. Sometimes we gotta we gotta get out there and, and lay it on the line. And I think uh, I think we did a little bit of that today. I mean, I'm gonna go away from this and sit down and reflect for a little bit before I start to do some editing because I have to put some stuff together for this to to air. But uh, I, I gotta sit and think about some stuff. You know, there's there's some people I need to have conversations with, and uh, they're not going to be easy, but. I'm going to go into it with with uh, you know the thought from Maria, Be gentle uh, with the people and hard and on the problem, and, and and what Bailey just said. You know, approach it from a different aspect, and and let them know your concern. So, uh, like I have new tools in my toolbox today.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, you know, when I I didn't know if I wanted to say that.
0: Yeah, I could see you were struggling with it a little bit, but I'm sure you must feel a sense of relief, uh, if that's the right word. I don't even know what word to put in there. Relief. Um I don't
1: know. I don't know. It's relief, yeah. It's 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 a weird it's it's you know, mixed emotions, right? They're messy. Mm-hmm. Uh but I was like I I want I want our listeners we're trying to build a relationship with our listeners. Mm-hmm. Interviewers, we don't want to just be people that are talking at them. No, 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 no. right? I mean, that's why we we have our little chats before we go into our episodes and Mm -hmm. you know, talk about, you know, I ask you about your mental health, uh, you know, and um, you know, and we started doing pub chat where we talk about other things about ourselves so that people can see other sides of us so that when they come back to these shows, you know, they know who um, we are
0: a little bit better,
1: yeah, and build a bit of a community, but. Also, when you're somewhat of a public figure, which we're becoming, mm-hmm. right? You're being memed. So, I yeah, mean, constantly. When you're being memed, um, how much of the stuff that's in your closet right. do you want to put out there? And how much do you, because we could have done this whole episode talking about other people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, easily.
1: Yeah. And not bringing ourselves to it. Right. And it's like, like in that moment, like before that moment, she was talking about stuff. And I was like, Oh, this reminds me of situations that I've been in.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's like, Do I bring this? Do I not bring this? And then, you know, when she started talking about, you know, her child, mm-hmm. you know, right now, but what about later? And I'm like, It's just immediately, you know, it's like, I remember a few times in particular,
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know,
1: and yeah, having some of this knowledge would have been really helpful.
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Without question. And it's not that I regret. No, no, I understand. Right? I understand what you're saying. Yeah. No. There, are,
1: there are some certain things I probably wish had not happened. Yes. But as we mentioned in previous episodes, forgiveness happens when you stop wishing for a better past.
0: Well, and you can't change your past. So just, Forgive yourself for it and move forward. You know? and, and it's made me who I am
1: and I like who I am. And, yeah, right? well, exactly. But certain things are probably a little harder than they needed to be.
0: Mm-hmm. I have no doubt. I mean, there's still things that I'm, I'm not talking about yet because I'm not ready to. I'm dealing with some stuff and, uh, you know, eventually I'll be able to talk about it in, in a public forum, but not right now, not right now. You know, yeah. there's, there's some, to, and, and again, I got to, how much am I going to reveal, right? There's, there's certain amounts of my life that I still want to maintain private, especially because it would involve somebody else and they have their right to privacy. Right. Um. You know. Uh,
1: and we're all entitled to our secret garden, as we said in a previous episode. Right? You know,
0: so yeah, there's, it, again, there's things I'm willing to talk about. Um, therapy helps for that. Uh, although it's never long enough, right? <laughs> 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 right and and as a result because i only get so much of it covered uh basically i'm, I'm out for the year um you know so any therapy i have now is is uh is stuff like this right uh, so right. The, you know there's 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 because this is a public forum I, I still would like to have the conversation about those things with a therapist in private first yes. to see yes how i feel about talking about it let alone you know telling the whole world
1: yeah I think that's the word they're looking for not so much relief but therapeutic
0: mm-hmm. yeah that was therapeutic <laughs> it was it was incredibly therapeutic wow. and and you know and and her approach to it is just so remarkable i i mean I just she's just approaches it in a completely different way where she said you know these people were eager to learn and then because they know their culture they're able to contribute you know this would work great in our environment in our culture and i'm like i've never thought about that before you know
1: yeah yeah Uh, well kids that's the end of this episode of the eager beaver interview project Oh, we hope that you love listening to this uh, because we love making it for you. We hope uh, that you got as much out of this than, uh, as we did. We got a lot. Uh, we did not expect this going in. No. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, but grateful. Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely grateful. Uh, this was a gift. This was a gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, because democracy is something you do. Um. Share this with your friends.
0: Mm-hmm. Please. Please. If you
1: listen to this. You never know who might need this.
0: You might be surprised to find out who might need this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be my only democracy, something you do think for this particular episode. Yeah, agreed. I don't, yeah. Agreed, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you like this interview, you can find us on the Dean Blundell Network as well as anywhere you get all your podcasts featuring a grizzly bear and a beaver. Who sometimes weep. Uh, okay, please, please share the podcast. And uh, we love your feedback. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and our email is trueNortheagerbeaver at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us via our pod page, podpage.com slash the true north eager beaver with a hyphen between each of those words. And if you really, really like this podcast and wish to encourage us to do more, well, we work for tips. So please feel free to buy a cup of coffee for Mr. Grizzly here. Or a mug of hot chocolate for me. via our coffee page. You can find our tip jar at ko-fi.com/slash-eagerbeaver. All in one word. That's ko-fi.com/slash-eagerbeaver. All in one word. And finally, if you'd rather think for your money, well, we've got you covered. Literally, with eager beaver t-shirts. We now have more designs, a total of six, from which to choose, in sizes from small to three XL. Being informed has never been more fashion. So go to deanplandale.square.site slash s slash store to get yourself some fabulous today. Uh, before I sign off, I just wanted to uh, recap that uh, that incident with, uh, with U.S. Curling um, to get you because we're facts first and I mm-hmm. didn't have them on hand at the moment. Uh, it's the head of the organization that runs olympic curling in the united states he actually resigned on friday in the wake of an investigation that oh, wow. revealed that he failed to act on allegations of sexual abuse and other harassment when he was commissioner of the national women's soccer league well wow. so it's jeff plush so very much jim jordan like mm-hmm. mm-hmm. wow uh so not anything he did himself but uh the bystander intervention mm-hmm. that we're talking had the opportunity to intervene and somehow
0: chose not well again didn't have the right tools in the toolbox i'm not i'm not trying to admonish what he didn't do i'm not trying to say it's okay i'm not saying it's okay but when you know better you do better right and 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 if if he was active in covering up anything well that's a whole different kettle of fish
1: mm-hmm. But uh, good for the athletes from U.S. Curling to say we're not going to tolerate that. Absolutely. And for U.S. Curling, uh, you know, Well, I mean, he said they said he resigned. So I don't know if they had a conversation with him that. Uh, Who knows? Yeah, uh, you know, that said you resign, like, or we fire you, or. And I don't know if there will be any consequences for the board of U.S. Curling because they say. brought him in, in the first place. Uh, but yeah. there's going to be more to that story. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, From the Beaver Lodge, this is your eager beaver and Mr. Grizzly saying, until next time, dear kids, it can be a tough world out there, so be kind to and gentle with yourself. Some words of wisdom, Mr. Grizzly?
0: Um, Please share this episode with everybody you can. Um, And I know that sounds self-serving, right? It does sound self-serving, but I think we might be able to make a difference in somebody's life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You never know what you never know what's going to connect. So you never know. All right, all right, Mr. Grizzly, roll the credits, please. The True North Eager Beaver Podcast is an Eager Beaver Mr. Grizzly collaboration. Research, story, and guest curation, and copy written by the Eager Beaver. Recording, production, editing, and additional research by Mr. Grizzly. Music courtesy of Ben Sound Royalty Free Music. Once again, thank you to our founding sponsors, the Peppermaster the Fee Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing and canadiantarot.com. And thank you to Pete Jarvis for our artwork. We love it. kids. we'll talk to you real soon. Bye. Take care. Yeah. Thanks
0: for listening. Thanks a lot. Eh? Bye.
2: Recording stopped. Oh, mama.
0: Yeah, there was a lot there. <laughs> huh?
2: Come on a journey like no other